So hey, if you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, we are in a series in the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount is, of course, uh, one of the most influential bodies of teaching in the history of the world. In fact, you could even say that the teaching in the Sermon on the Mount is the most influential uh, body of ethical teaching ever given in the history of the world. And the sermon that I just played for you is uh, from uh, a sermon that Dr. Martin Luther King gave in Montgomery, Alabama in 1957. And for King, it was not just another sermon. Rather, this sermon was an articulation of his entire sort of philosophy and principle that was at the heart of the civil rights movement. In fact, he said in the sermon regarding uh, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, that they are so basic to me, he says, quote, because it is part of my basic philosophical and theological orientation. The whole idea of love, the whole philosophy of love. And he described his own uh, mass nonviolent resistance as activities that were grounded in this principle of loving your enemies. And I think it illustrates for us a couple things about the Sermon on the Mount. The first is that the Sermon on the Mount has power to inspire movements, radical movements. And even those outside of the church have found the, the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount incredibly inspiring. And it's actually motivated powerful movements like uh, Gandhi's uh, movement to liberate England or uh, India from uh, British imperial rule in addition to the civil rights movement. But I think it also reveals to us something about the nature of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's this. The Sermon on the Mount is more than simply a collection of religious, ethical teaching. Jesus gives us in the sermon a moral vision. He gives to us a vision of what life looks like in the kingdom of God. In other words, when the saving, powerful, healing rule of God breaks into the world and people come underneath the powerful, saving rule of God, what does it look like in lived experience? And Jesus paints for us this picture in the Sermon on the Mount. We said last week that there were two opposite extremes when it comes to reading the Sermon on the Mount. The first was what I referred to as the absolutist reading of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is captured by the great Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy. And Tolstoy is essentially, at the end of his life, he committed himself to obeying, obeying to the very letter, the Sermon on the Mount. And he gave away everything that he had. He actually abandoned, as the story goes, at the very end of his life, his family, wound up dying on the streets in a train station, cold, barefoot, and alone. And we said last week that one of the problems with the absolutist, kind of the literalistic reading of the Sermon on the Mount is that the Sermon on the Mount doesn't lend itself to that kind of reading. You know, there's different genres of literature and different genres invite different kinds of readings. And so you wouldn't read a science book like the way you read a book of poetry. And the Sermon on the Mount is full of these pithy, memorable, provocative metaphors and hyperbolic language. It's in the Sermon on the Mount that we discover language about us being the light of the world, the salt of the earth, a city on a hill. Jesus says here, your, your eye is the lamp of the body. He warns us about wolves in sheep's clothing and speaks to us about a narrow gate and a house that a foolish man built on a sand. 
He gives us evocative images about treasures on earth that moth and rust destroy and lilies of the field and birds of the air. And he talks to us about taking the log out of our own eye. And if your right hand is causing you to sin, lop it off. And if your right eye is causing you to sin, pluck it out. And these are hyperbolic, metaphorical ways of talking. What Jesus is giving us here is a moral vision that's intended to stimulate our imagination. We are supposed to soak our imagination in this sermon and then go out and live life in the world. So the one extreme is the absolutist reading. On the other extreme is what might be called the unrealistic ideal reading. And I think for a lot of us, this is probably one we are most sympathetic with. And it essentially says, look, when Jesus gives us commands in the Sermon on the Mount, I mean, come on. Who's intended to obey this stuff? I mean, he says here, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Anyone here achieve that one? You know? Um, And then he talks to us about this, you know, external conformity is not enough. It needs to go down deep. Obedience needs to go all the way down. Your righteousness needs to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so some say Jesus is giving us here an impossible ideal so that we might know that we, are, we can't keep the Sermon on the Mount. We're broken, sinful people. We fail. And in seeing our failure to keep the Sermon on the Mount, we will seek God's grace. We will become those who are poor in spirit, those who are meek. And it is those that are poor in spirit that receive the grace of God. And of course, there's truth in that reading because who among us reads this sermon and doesn't feel like we've been undressed morally and feel exposed and feel like he knows me deep down and who can keep this? And we seek God's grace and that's good and that should call us, it should bring us to do that. But make note, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount tells us that he gives us the Sermon on the Mount not to show us that we can't keep the Sermon on the Mount, but in order that we might become the kind of people who do keep the Sermon on the Mount. At the very end, he tells a story about two men who build homes. One builds it on the sand, the other's on solid ground, and the guy who builds his house on the true, strong foundation are those who hears the sayings of Jesus and puts them into practice. And so we said last week that what we are given in the Sermon on the Mount essentially is true north. It's a vision of what a beautiful, compelling life would look like. And it's to call us into this journey of taking the yoke, the ethical teaching of Jesus upon ourselves and to learn it and to grow in it so that we might further be conformed more and more day by day into the image of Jesus, learning to become the kinds of people who practice the Sermon on the Mount. Or as C.S. Lewis once said, he said, the command be ye perfect is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible. He is going to make us into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, and we can prevent him if we choose, he will make the, filthy, the feeblest and filthiest of us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though of course on a smaller scale, his own boundless love and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for, nothing less. He meant what he said. So do you see what Lewis is saying? What he's saying is profoundly true to the message of the New Testament. 
which is that ultimately the end game for a follower of Jesus is conformity of character and life to the way and to the character of Jesus. Now, could you imagine just for a moment just how incredibly rich and joyful life would be if your character looked like the character of Jesus? I mean, Jesus invites us to imagine us becoming the kind of people who quickly and humbly make up when a relationship is broken. To be people who deal decisively with sin and live faithfully in marriage, who speak with simplicity and absolute honesty, who are free from sin and insecurities that lead to self-promotion. To be people who love and do good and pray for not just our friends but our enemies, who give generously, pray regularly, give sacrificially, in secret, out of love for God and for its own sake who exchange the destructive power of anger and lust and anxiety and greed for trust and joy and goodness, to become people who live not with a critical eye of judgment, but who view people through the lens of grace. Do you know how happy you would be if you were that kind of a person? You would be content and at peace and joyful. And Jesus says, I have a good way of life for you. Come, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is good, and my burden is light. Dallas Willard, I remember years ago, I was at um, my first introduction to Sierra Madre. I was at a class with a great Christian writer and teacher, Dallas Willard, up at the Catholic Retreat Center. And I remember something he said in that class. He said, you know, he goes, sometimes people like to uh, engage in a conversation about the gospel with this leading question. They say, if you were to die tonight... And God were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say to him? And uh, Willard said, I don't like to ask people if you were, I don't like to ask them the question, what are you going to do if you die tonight? He said, I, asked that, I like to ask people, what are you going to do if you don't die tonight? Who's going to teach you how to live? And Jesus says, I have come that you might have life I will teach you how to live. Come and take my yoke upon you and learn from me. And a condensation of Jesus' yoke is found for us in the Sermon on the Mount, this ethical vision. Now, in this way, get this. Jesus is, he, 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 Jesus is in competition in some sense with other moral, ethical philosophers, you know, there, there's Jeremy Bentham and the development of the moral, ethical philosophy of utilitarianism. And then there was Immanuel Kant and the categorical imperative and, and John Locke and libertarian free, you know, ethics. Jesus proposes for us an ethical vision. And he invites us to ground ourselves, like even Dr. King ground his own imagination and heart in this vision, and then to go out and to live in the world out of this vision. Now, it's helpful sometimes, I think, when you are examining different ethical systems, different belief systems, to find where there is commonality. And so recently, my wife and I have started reading a book by, uh, uh, the, it's, a, it's a joint authored book by the Dalai Lama and Bishop Desmond Tutu, and then a secular Jewish guy. And the book is on happiness. And what they're seeking to do is to find where there is commonality between Christianity and other traditions, and kind of like, are there some universals here that we all agree on? And there's value in finding commonality. But 
there's also deep value and insight to be gained when you contrast ethical systems and you find out what's unique and distinct about this one as opposed to that one. And this morning, that is what I want to invite you to do with me is we're going to explore together the ethical kind of like teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, and I want to highlight for you three ways in which Jesus' ethics are distinct and unique and different from Jeremy Bentham and Immanuel Kant and John Locke and John Rawls and the other uh, famous ethical philosophers. So we're going to look together at that. And in this way, we're going to, today we're, we're actually doing kind of a flyover of the Sermon on the Mount as a whole. Next week, we're going to get into kind of the verse-by-verse the, the verse kind of walking through the Beatitudes and such. But sometimes you can miss the forest for the trees. And so I don't want you to miss the forest of the Sermon on the Mount for the individual trees of each verses. And so today, I want to kind of stand back, do a flyover, and I want us to note three things that are unique and distinct about the ethical teaching of Jesus. Are you guys ready? All right, let's go. First thing that, that we find that is unique and distinct in the Sermon on the Mount about the ethical teaching of Jesus is that the ethics of Jesus go below the surface. The ethics of Jesus go below the surface. Now, it's interesting, in the Sermon on the Mount, it, there are really three main blocks of teaching right in the heart of the sermon. And one deals with Jesus and the law, the second with Jesus and his view about religious practice, and then thirdly is about Jesus and kind of social relationships. And so that is chapter 5, verse 17, down to the end of chapter 5, that's section 1, chapter 6, verse 1, down to verse 18, that's section 2, and then 6, 19, down through 7, verse uh, 11 is the third section. There will be a test. You've taken notes. All right. But it's interesting, in these first two blocks, Jesus draws out a contrast between two kinds of righteousness and two kinds of religious adherence. And so in chapter 5, verses 17 to 18, he draws out a distinction between two kinds of righteousness. Look at what he says in verse 20. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that, in other words, the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Do you hear that? He's making a distinction between the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees and the righteousness of his followers. And then as the text unfolds, he further extrapolates on these contrasts with this phrase. He says again and again, uh, you have heard, but I say... You have heard, you shall not murder, but I say, be careful of anger. You have heard, don't commit adultery, but I say, look out for lust. You have heard, uh, maintain your oaths, don't break your oaths, but I say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. You have heard, love your neighbor, but I say, love your enemies. You see, Jesus is drawing a contrast between two kinds of righteousness, And the basic contrast is between a righteousness that is marked by external conformity to a rule and a righteousness that goes down below the surface to actually a heart that is shaped by a particular character and virtue. Then he goes on in chapter 6 with two kinds of religious practice. He talks about a religious practice that is to be seen by people and one that is to be seen by your Father in heaven. Look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. 
And then he gives three examples. He talks about two people that go to pray, two people that fast, and two people that give charitably. But the difference between these two people could not be more stark. One is doing their religious practice in order to be seen by people so that you might cheer them on and say, whoa, that guy is impressive. That is awesome. Did you do that? You are amazing. And the other person is doing it for its own sake out of love for God and love for neighbor. And so again, Jesus is contrasting an external conformity to a religious practice versus going below the surface to a heart. And what Jesus is revealing to us is that what he is interested in, in his ethics, is an ethics that comes out of a character, that comes out of motivation, that comes out of virtue, that is shaped by love for God and neighbor. This is what he's after. Or put it like this. Years, uh, years ago, when my girls were just little, um, uh, they, they were homeschooled, and um, so what they would oftentimes do is they would go out in the neighborhood, and they would, they would kind of find little things to be a part of their science projects and whatnot, and, and we lived in Seal Beach, and there was some uh, milkweed growing in the garden next door, and so there were monarch butterflies, and so the girls, you know, they like to take caterpillars and see them cocoon and then, you know, hatch them and are, you know, like in a little aquarium type thing and then we'd release them. It was a catch and release thing. We wouldn't eat them or anything. Um, but um, one day we, we found uh, this one little cocoon and we took it in. It actually wasn't a monarch cocoon. It was a different kind of cocoon. It was a particular kind of caterpillar, and we had seen it around, and we knew that it cocooned there, and we were like, oh, that's it. You know, so we, we were like, well, what kind of butterfly is this cocoon going to come into you know, or turn into? And so we took it in uh, the, the, the house, and we had it in the, the aquarium. And one night over dinner, my daughters start erupting in screams. And the thing is behind me, and I look over there, and all of a sudden, it, it, there are these three enormous black hairy flies crawling out of the cocoon. They're like, what kind of caterpillar turns into three big black hairy flies? And it turns out that what happens is, is that a tachnid fly will be a parasite on a little caterpillar and it will lay its larva into the body of the caterpillar so that when it cocoons, the little maggots, yes, I said it, the maggots, <laughs> they start going and they start eating out the inside of the caterpillar as it's inside the cocoon. But what's crazy is that externally it looks the same. They both look like cocoons, but internally one is full of dark, hairy flies and the other turns into a beautiful butterfly. And this is a parable. <laughs> Very often... Religious people, churchy people, they can look good on the outside. They can volunteer for church. They can read their Bible. They can do all of the right things. Maybe they look like they're faithful in their marriage, and they certainly haven't murdered anyone. And yet, if you go below the surface, you find anger and lust and dishonesty. You find a heart that wants to simply be seen by other people, and there's a deadness, and there's black flies. But what God is interested in is going down below the surface. There's a great uh, 
illustration of this in, the, in one of C.S. Lewis's books, um, in his Chronicles of Narnia, there's the voyage of the John Treader, and there's this character in the voyage of the John Treader named Eustace, and he's this beastly, arrogant, snarky kid, and he's just obnoxious, and, and he's self-centered, and there's a story in there about his transformation, and his transformation comes when he goes to this little island and he, 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 he becomes greedy for this golden bracelet. He puts it on and it belonged to a dragon's lair. And because he coveted the gold of a dragon, he himself becomes a dragon. And he's terrified. And he wants to be changed. And of course, what C.S. Lewis is saying is that externally, he now looks like what he always was internally, namely a scaly old dragon. And he needs to be transformed. And the transformation comes when, the, when, the, when the, the, the lion Aslan comes and he says, look, you need to be torn open. You know, and he says, okay, okay. So he starts ripping the skin off. And at some point, Aslan says, that's not going to do it. It needs to go deeper. And he cuts him down deep where Eustace says, I almost felt like he dug into my heart and he ripped me open and he peeled the thing off and he said, it hurt like, oh, get out. And he says, but it felt good because I was becoming free. And this is the work of Christian transformation. God wants to go deep in your life and deal with not just what you do on the outside, but your heart on the inside. God wants you to go below the surface. So the ethics of Jesus begins below the surface. And so say to the person next to you, just tell them it needs to go below the surface. Go ahead, shout it out, tell them. Tell them. So the ethical life of Jesus, it not only needs to go below the surface, but the second thing that we see in the Sermon on the Mount is that it grows out of a life with God. So this is fascinating. I'm just going to spend a few minutes talking together about the structure of the Sermon on the Mount. If you like this sort of thing, you're going to love this. Uh, if you don't, you know, you get bored by this sort of thing, um, just get over it and listen for the next few minutes. You'll be all right. Trust me. So, the Sermon on the Mount has this fascinating structure. You know, most of us, we come encounter with the flesh and blood, bones, what's, or the flesh and blood, what's on the surface, you know, these great uh, metaphors and hyperbolic statements and commands and evocative language, but below the surface is this fascinating structure. And so, for example, the very, uh, there's bookends. In chapter 4, verse 23 to 5, 1, uh, mirrors what it says in chapter 7, verse 28 to 8, 1. So it says, great crowds followed him in both passages. Uh, it talks about the mountain. Uh, chapter 4, he goes up. Chapter 7, he comes down. And then it, it refers to his teaching. But the language is meant to create a top and a bottom, kind of like a head and a tail, uh, a bookends for the Sermon on the Mount. And then when you go further into the Sermon on the Mount, what you discover is that the blessings or the Beatitudes in the beginning are mirrored by warnings at the end. And then after the blessings in the beginning and the warnings at the end, the next you know, thing that you go down is a statement about the law and the prophets. Jesus says in chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then in chapter 7, verse 12, it says, so whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Do you see the mirror? Well, you think, well, maybe it continues to work itself out that way, and certainly it does. There are actually, within that, 
sandwiched in between the statements about the law and the prophets are three distinct sections, each which break down very neatly in triads, little statements of three. Some of you thought that three-point sermons were just my invention. They're not. They're right here. Jesus gave them. But there, these three sections in the middle, it talks about Jesus and the law broken down, speaking of anger, lust, and divorce. That's one section. Then oaths, retaliation, and love for enemies. That's the second section. And that's mirrored in the end by the social commands of Jesus, which also break down in six exhortations from 619 down to 7 verse 11. Now, right in the middle is the teaching about Jesus and our religious lives so that if you actually break down the Sermon on the Mount, kind of structurally, here's what you discover, is it breaks down in what scholars call a chiastic structure. Can we all say that together? Chiastic structure. Yeah, where basically beginnings mirror endings and kind of like keeps going down. And what happens is, is that at the very center of the Sermon on the Mount, at the, the very heart of the sermon, do you know what it is? It's the Lord's Prayer. And this structure yields meaning. And the meaning is that the ethical life is first and foremost a spiritual life. What fuels, what empowers, what leads, what guides, what strengthens and nourishes our ethical life in the world is a deep and rich life with God. In fact, Jesus makes reference constantly in the Sermon on the Mount to a unique, special, actually in that time in history, kind of an unusual kind of relationship that a human being can have with God. And that's between a father and a son or daughter. Jesus says, look, you know, don't worry, your, your father in heaven cares for you. He closed the lilies of the field. He's not going to close you. His eye is on the sparrow. Don't you think your father's eye is on you? And then Jesus, when he teaches us to pray, the name he puts on our lips to address God is that name, Father. He says, say, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so what the, the net effect of all of this is simply this, that the ethical life, according to Jesus, flows out of a rich relationship with God that comes to us not by effort, but by grace. You know, there are some ethical uh, religious teachers that essentially paint the religious ethical life as a, as a stairway to heaven. And if you just keep climbing up, you know, you kind of like follow the five noble truths or you follow the, the eight steps or whatever, you know, the, you know, you can finally, after a while, work your way up to God. But in Christianity, in the, the good news of the kingdom of God, God descends down the staircase and he comes among us so that in coming among us, we might enter into relationship with him. Relationship, grace, Christ begins first and then it moves out into the ethical life. So we see, first of all, in the sermon that the ethical way of Jesus, it goes down below the surface. Secondly, it grows out of a rich, vibrant relationship with God. But thirdly, the third thing that I want you to see is that the ethical way of Jesus, this ethical life, is grounded first and foremost in the authority and the life of Jesus. Now let's talk for a minute just briefly about kind of where we're at culturally when it comes to ethical norms. 
You know, it's interesting in, if you, if you kind of do a broad brush, broad stroke uh, version of kind of like the history of ethical thinking and philosophizing, you could basically break the history of ethics down into three main parts. We could talk first about ethics from above. And these are ethical norms that are revealed from God to humanity. So they're divinely given. And so, of course, uh, Moses on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai is the prime, prime example of this. He goes up, he, de- he, he receives the law of God on these two tablets of stone, and then he descends down from the mountain. He says, here are ethics from above, from God. And before the Enlightenment, that was the primary way in which people did ethics. It was from above. Now, after the Enlightenment, in the modern period, a new way of doing ethics began to emerge. And you could call that an ethics from below, where it didn't begin with divine revelation, but it began with human reasoning. And so these are the great ethical philosophers of the modern world, Jeremy Bentham and Immanuel Kant and John Locke, and John Stuart Mill. I mean, these thinkers, they they sought to find universal principles through reason that could guide and direct our efforts, that would guide humanity, that could shape our societies. But it was grounded in human reason. Now, of course, almost none of these theologians on the one hand or philosophers on the other hand felt that they were mutually exclusive because there are many uh, theologians like the Apostle Paul, (laughs) who who, who would claim that, yes, ethics are divinely revealed, and yet there's a sense in which the law of God is written on human hearts. And so humanity can kind of like, through reason, through studying the, the world and human actions, we can come to some knowledge of what is right and what is wrong. And of course, even the great ethical philosophers of the last three or 400 years, they've almost all bumped in against the problem that if you're going to have a universal ethical standard, you have to have a universal lawgiver. And who is that? And where is that? How do you ground your universal ethics? But there's a third kind of stage, and you could say this is the, the stage of late modernity, late, late modernity. And this is not ethics that are grounded, that, that, are ground, that, that come from above, or ethics that come from below, but these are ethics that come from the self. And this is the air we breathe today. It essentially says, look, you want to know what's right and wrong, what is true and good for you. And so as an absurd example, think of it this way. Uh, if you were to come and you were to say, like, uh, by design or by reason, who is Josh? And I were to say to you, well, I am a 44-year-old white male. But what if you were to come up to me and I were to say, you know, I know that that's, that's, what, that's what your old, you know, those old outdated modes of thinking tell me I am. But actually what I am is a cat, I'm a five-year-old kitty. And this is kind of the absurdity of the waters we swim in today. People are deciding ethics based upon whatever their personal preferences. They decide for themselves. And then what the prime ethical value is, is for you not to judge what anybody's personal preferences are. And over against all of that, Jesus comes on the scene 
And he grounds his authority in his own life, in his own self. In fact, in, um, in, in chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus puts it like this. He says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In other words, this whole story of the Old Testament finds its culmination and climax in me. And then he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then he goes on and he says, you have heard it was said, but I say. And what Jesus is contrasting is the teaching of Moses with his own teaching. In fact, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is, there's this strong contrast being developed between Jesus and Moses. And let me just kind of show you this briefly because I think it's fascinating. Again, some of you will like this, some of you don't, and I'm sorry, next week we won't do this. So those of you who don't like this stuff, that's, you come back next week. If you do, you sit here and you just enjoy it. Put a smile on your face. So this is pretty fascinating. So Matthew intentionally tells the story of Jesus in a way that echoes the story of Moses. And so in chapter 2, we hear about the slaughter of the innocents, you know, where Herod says an edict to have all children under two be slaughtered. Of course, that calls to mind the slaughter of the innocents underneath Pharaoh during the time of Moses. After that, the next stage in the gospel, Jesus goes down into Egypt to flee from Herod until he hears news that Herod has died, and then Joseph and Mary bring Jesus back. And in Exodus, after Moses flees out into the wilderness, he hears that Pharaoh had died, and now he goes back into Egypt. And then after Moses brings about the liberation of the children of Israel, he brings them through the Red Sea. And in chapter 3 of Matthew's gospel, Jesus is baptized, with first, which 1 Corinthians tells us is a type of a baptism, or it's a type of his crossing through the Red Sea. And after Jesus comes out of the waters of baptism, out of his passage through water, just like the children of Israel out of their passage through water, the children of Israel go into the wilderness for 40 years and Jesus goes into the wilderness for 40 days. And then in the wilderness, the children of Israel, or Moses goes up on a mountain and he receives the law. And then after coming out of the wilderness, Jesus goes up on the mountain and gives the law. But here's the the fascinating contrast. In... Exodus, Moses hears the voice of God, and that's what he delivers to the people. But in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is the voice of God. He is the fullest disclosure of God's true self among humanity. And so what we receive in the Sermon on the Mount is not simply ethical teaching from below. In fact, we don't even get it from above In the Sermon on the Mount, the God who was eternal and above actually immerses himself below among us, takes on flesh and blood, and embodies the Sermon on the Mount, and he becomes the one who turns the other cheek and walks the extra mile, who loves his enemy, who forgives and prays for those who persecute them. Jesus is the love of God made flesh in history among us. And he says to us, come to me, Take my yoke, take my teaching upon you and learn the good life that leads to your flourishing. 
I have a better ethical life, a better ethical system than Jeremy Bentham or Immanuel Kant or even Moses. I have invited you into a better, a truer way. Come and learn how to live for me. So here is how Jesus' teaching is so distinct and so unique among the, this is an ethics that go below the surface. He's not just concerned about external conformity, but our virtue and our character. He, he, he wants to go below the surface. Jesus teaches us an ethical life that grows out of a rich, vibrant relationship with God where, where we know ourselves to be God's children, to be recipients, the objects of the great, passionate love of the Father. And then we engage in this life out of that conviction. And it is a way of life that is grounded in Jesus' own identity as the eternal word of God made flesh among us. And this is good news. It is good news that God has not left us on a, in a sea of relativism, in a sea of trying to figure out how to live life well. You know, I don't know how you guys experience growing up, but I'll just say personally, like living and growing up in a postmodern age where old norms have been deconstructed has been disorienting for me. You know, you think about, there were, there were times back in the olden days, you know, when, when if you were a parent, for example, you would receive a tradition on how to raise your children from your parents, who learned it from their parents, who learned it from their parents. Who learned, there were just norms that were passed on, and you took that on. You know, and now in our culture, we say the most stupid things like, look, you've got to let your child decide for themselves what is right and wrong. Really? Like, unless your child is like the next Aristotle or Socrates or Plato, like, that's not going to go very well. Like, most of us are human creatures. We have feet of clay, and we actually need wisdom, the wisdom of the ages, the wisdom of the ancients. And Jesus has brought the wisdom of the ancient of days, the eternal triune God has come among us in Jesus to make his way of life clear and plain so that we can take his yoke, his way of life upon ourselves, learn it, and begin in imaginative and creative and provocative ways that bring transformation to homes and neighborhoods and communities as we practice the way of Jesus. And so may we together, this is, I mean, can I just speak honestly as a pastor to you? This is what I want for my life. Isn't this what you want? And so together, this is the journey we are on, is to seek the practice, the way of Jesus together.